I couldn't be religious and gay. It was impossible. I was being marketed as some sort of like teenage it girl. When a girl kissed me on my 18th birthday, a whole other world opened up to me. I was a minor nuisance. Eight Australians will tell you about the choices that have led them to unexpected places. These are some of the stories you will hear on Let Me Tell You, a podcast where real people tell incredible real stories. Look for Let Me Tell You and follow wherever you get your podcasts. This is a podcast for the SBS Emerging Writers Competition. The SBS Emerging Writers Competition invites aspiring writers to share their unique stories, with the winner awarded $5,000 to support the development of their storytelling. Head to sbs.com.au forward slash writers to find out more. Hello and welcome to The New Writers' Room, a podcast for emerging writers. My name is Caitlin Chang. I'm Candace Chong. We're two commissioning editors at SBS Voices. We're here today to talk about all the things that go into memoir writing. What happened was my mum bought me some boxer shorts. She thought they were outdoor shorts and so did I. And I thought they were really cool and, you know, I wore them to school on a mufti day. So a lot of the stories we publish have something to do with family. It makes sense considering one of our very first influences is our family life. And to be honest, it kind of shapes what our idea of normal is, which (laughs) once we get out in the world, we quickly realise that our family is weird. (laughs) Are you speaking from personal experience there, Candice? Absolutely. (laughs) I mean, it can be tough for a young person, right? Like, especially if you're from a cold background, because the unspoken code is basically be normal. Mm. But, you know, what they mean is be Anglo-Saxon normal. Yeah. So the beauty of good memoir writing is that it shows that, yes, our families are weird, but all families are weird. And so we're all in this together. Yeah, I really like that. Yes, all of our families are weird. I think actually one of my most favourite stories, which you commissioned recently, Candice, was by one of our regular writers, Con Stamacostas. Mm. And the piece is all about his toddler who refuses to hug people, much <laughs> to the dismay of her great grandparents. And <laughs> I love that. <laughs> it's so good. And it's very relatable to me because I have kids <laughs> and I've got Greek in laws. But um, what I love about it is, how he talks about all the ways he's been a good Greek son. You know, he's married a Greek woman, he's produced grandchildren, but now it's his daughter throwing the spanner in the works by her refusal to hug her grandparents. And it's just really funny. And there's this one great anecdote where Mm. Con is taking his daughter for her two-year-old checkup and one of her grandparents pulls him aside and suggests that he talks to the doctor about her um, <laughs> Why doesn't she hug? hug. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is it a medical condition? Why won't she hug her grandparents? And ultimately, <laughs> like, this story is about Con trying to navigate the expectations of his family with the well-being and happiness of his daughter mm. and also what is deemed acceptable by society and in this case child development experts where no you don't make a toddler hug yeah. their grandparents if they don't want to and he really manages to highlight the tensions that can occur yeah. between two generations especially ones from two different cultures 
And he does it in a really hilarious way. Yeah, I remember that bit well um, and how, you know, he told his in-law that the doctor's advice was, uh, maybe if you weren't so desperate, she might <laughs> hug you. <laughs> so, so I think like Con's piece is a perfect example that like humour can be such a powerful tool to yeah. talk about things that are hard to talk about essentially. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So joining us today is Cyrus Bezian. Cyrus is a Sydney-based screenwriter and comedian and he's performed at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival, Sydney Comedy Festival, Sydney Fringe Festival and has written essays for SVS Voices since 2019. He's written about the time he pretended to be Italian at school. Um, Cyrus is Iranian, Australian, <laughs> P.S. And the time he wore a pair of Space Jam boxes to Mufti Day because his mother bought them and neither of them realised that boxes were not shorts. Love it. Hi, Cyrus. Thank you for joining us. It's nice to have a stand-up nerd in the house. Thanks for having me. I just, <laughs> when you said stand-up nerd, I sort of interpreted you, like you were saying you're a stand-up nerd. I, I don't too know am a stand-up nerd. Okay, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Two stand-up nerds in the house. Yes. You're, you're the person who actually can do stand-up, so that's what Apparently, we're here for yes. today. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so how long have you been a comedy writer for? So I've been a comedy writer, I would say like professionally, like maybe five years, mm-hmm. but semi-professionally since like university um, and before that. Mm-hmm. Um Actually, no, university, definitely amateur, obviously. But, um, yeah, I've just, I've always uh, kind of been into writing funny things and performing funny things since um, primary school, really. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of funny things, we'd love to have you read a passage from one of your stories about your family called mm-hmm. Wearing Underwear as Pants and Other Fashion Mishaps. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> when I was eight, mum bought me a pair of boxer shorts They were cool. They had the cast of Space Jam on them. Michael Jordan was surrounded by Bugs Bunny and his Looney Tune friends all wrapped around my crotch. (laughs) I'd never worn boxer shorts before. The satin fabric was wild. However, because my mum bankrolled my clothing, I was unaware the boxer shorts were underwear because she was unaware the boxer shorts were underwear. Why isn't all clothing made of this material? They're so comfortable. These are definitely for wearing outside in front of other human beings during the day. (laughs) So the following Mufti day, I wore my cool new shorts to school. I wore a blue t-shirt, my boxer shorts, a (laughs) pair of white socks and black sneakers because it was the 90s. The whole idea of a Mufti day was still a new concept for me. We'd only migrated from Iran a few years prior. I don't know if there were any rules or if there was a proper way of doing it. The irony was that Mufti Day really only had one rule. Don't turn up in your underwear. (laughs) (laughs) You you broke the one rule, Cyrus. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. And also it's not fair that there is that rule. They sound like amazing shorts, by the way. I remember those. Those boxes were so trendy that, like, (laughs) everyone, I remember at my school, everyone wore them under their school uniform, the the satin boxer shorts. Oh, wow. They were like Looney Tunes or Tweety Bird, you know. <laughs> yeah, because my, my logic with it was like, oh, these are things that like people are meant to see these pictures on the shorts. So yeah. obviously they're for wearing outside. Otherwise, what was the point? <laughs> Why would you wear such bright shorts underneath other pants? 
I love I love that bit because like you did such a good job of building up the pathos of the story. Mm. The way you, you set the scene was amazing. Like there's something mm. about it that right at the start you're like you know at the edge of your seat going oh no he's gonna be in trouble <laughs> so <laughs> i i wonder as you're writing that scene like what what's going on in your mind and how do you do that um so basically because my background is in stand-up comedy um that's kind of where i started off kind of writing mm-hmm. um a lot of like the autobiographical works that i've done mm-hmm. so like that story was originally a stand-up bit that i that I performed uh, um, and it wasn't, it wasn't actually, cause like reading it out loud just then, for example, um, that's not kind of word for word what the standup bit is. The standup bit is a little bit different and mm. um, it has like certain pacing to it. But um, because I guess I performed it so much and, and done it in different ways, I kind of learned the, the better way to structure it as a story just from performing it to an audience, um, mm. which is kind of why stand-up's really good for learning how to write essentially because you're you're getting kind of instant feedback yeah as you're performing stand-up bits obviously Mm. you get instant feedback of you know people Mm. laughing but when you're writing alone in the room without the laughters yep how do you kind of set yourself up with pacing and how do you get a sense of the music of the piece i guess for me like comedy for me has always been quite a kind of organic thing that kind of comes out of me. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, when I said, like, I've been kind of comedy writing since primary school, um, like one of my first memories was we had to give a speech um, where we had to pretend to be an inventor of something and (laughs) everyone kind of got up and was like, I'm the inventor of the television, I'm the inventor of, like, the airplane. And for me, like, in that moment, I I just got this kind of moment of inspiration, like, I, I'm going to say I'm the inventor of the guy who invented the little plastic things on the end of shoelaces because it's like I just thought it was like so funny. And then I, I got up and started doing that and like instantly like this, the room full of all these uh, students just like burst into laughter. And then from that point on, from like year five onwards, anytime I had to give a presentation or a speech, I was like, I'm just going to make it funny because it's fun to do that. So like. I would just go with this instinctual kind of inherent feeling of like what I thought was funny. And I just kept doing that hmm. forever, I guess. Yeah. So, <laughs> Speaking about like, you know, family, uh, there's often a lot of awkward things in our family life. So I wonder um, to you, how does humor help when you write about your family life? Um, it, it was tricky for me to kind of find a balance because I kind of, didn't feel comfortable kind of sharing all that stuff. Um, mm-hmm. But the more I've kind of developed, the more I've realized that like, it's it's very like fertile ground and there's a way of doing it that's like, um, can be done. It, I mean, it helps me tell stories about my family because the people in my family are very funny. Like kind <laughs> of, none of them are like performers. They're, they're all kind of, kind of doctors or engineers mm. basically. And, but they're all very, humorous people who like you know my mom's really good at impressions and like um (laughs) that's great but but the thing is like I've I kind of grew up around that but I would like ridicule them as well and yeah but I guess the humor part uh has always been like an easy access point the hard part for me has been like wanting to tell stories that are to an audience that don't kind of embarrass my family Mm -hmm. members yeah yeah 
And so the, the pieces that you've written where you write about your family, do they read it mm. first or mm. do you just put mm. it out there? Mm. Or? No, they don't read it. I'll just tell them about it. Yeah, it's, it's more about just I would just tell them if it's if there's something mm. like a hot button issue or whatever. Yeah. Um, Mm. Cyrus, I think you're great at just getting the right sound bites and dialogue in your pieces. Do you have any tips for new writers, you know, who might have a lot of one-liners from their family to draw from? What do you personally do? Do you take notes or just have an excellent memory of good sound bites? So I think the sound bite is uh, kind of like an access point for what, what's happening around it. And I think it's important to like be aware of why it is that you're remembering that certain soundbite or mm. that certain thing. In terms of like process, when I do autobiographical writing, it'll always be a stream of consciousness to begin with where I'll sit down and I'll write stream of consciousness for like 20 minutes. And when I look back on the writing, I'll, I'll notice like, you know, a sentence or a paragraph or something that, that triggers a moment. And that's usually linked to a soundbite or an image. Mm. so to speak. Yeah. And when you're writing memoir articles, obviously you're kind of working within a word count. We usually publish around 800 words per story. Mm. So you've also got to, I guess, budget your words. Mm. So what do you do when you've got a really great line or something and, and it just doesn't, might not work for that story? Do you save it or are you okay with letting go of, you know, the, the things, the, the little bits of gold, which maybe just might not work? Yeah, definitely. I mean, they're they're not as they're never as good as you think they are. It's kind of like, you know, they're not gold. It's like they're it's like silver, basically. So this is an experienced comedian talking. <laughs> but you know, like it's always. I've just found that the more I write and the older I get, the more I realize that like things can always be shorter and better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and like efficiency of language and efficiency of storytelling is always better than being like verbose. Mm. And so the piece that you read for us earlier, you mentioned that that was originally a stand-up performance. Is Mm -hmm. your writing on the page, is that different from how you approach stand-up or are they pretty much interchangeable? Uh, No, it's actually quite different because I find with prose writing it's a lot more internal and Mm. it's it's a lot more um yeah I think internal is the best way to to think about it because you're you're able to kind of play with the language Mm. uh more delicately yeah Cyrus I want to go back um that incident the Mufti Day incident is you know kind of embarrassing I Mm. wonder how we can use moments like that as an asset in our storytelling Um, I think it's almost like a philosophical outlook that you have to kind of develop. And it's, it's something that I'm still working through as well. Mm. And I think, um, it's not just embarrassing moments, but I just think moments of trauma, I guess. (laughs) Mild trauma. (laughs) Extremes that like, uh, you know, in the moment aren't pleasant. And then after a certain amount of time, you know, they, they get a bit more bearable and then the more time passes, they begin to get funny and that's kind of like, that's what the saying is, um, you know, comedy equals tragedy plus time. Yes. Mm. Like a, you know, common saying. And I think that holds really true. Um, and I guess it, the, the time part is the variable there in terms of like how much time one needs to pass before they can look at it in that light. But that is very much a mindset, I think. Um, mm-hmm. I guess one of the things about memoir writing is you are putting so much of yourself 
out there on the page. And as you said, you're writing about things which at the time might have been a bit traumatic and then Mm. you've processed it over time. How do you decide kind of where your boundary is and what's your advice for other people who want to write about themselves and their life? That's a tricky one and Mm. it's something that I kind of still struggle with because there are kind of stories from my life or like stories I know about that I would probably never write about Mm. um, and stories that like my parents have told me that I'd never write about. And it did take me a while to kind of even write about my life in various ways. So like, for example, you know, I changed my name when I was 14 or 15 and like I kind of wrote about that when I was 26, 27. And even Mm. then it was hard because of a variety of issues. And I like interviewed my parents to like get their take on like that specific event in my life. And that Mm. kind of opened up another bunch of new things. But I think ultimately if you're choosing to be a writer professionally um, or be a writer who wants an audience, I think that comes with the, with the territory Mm. or be able to put up with the fact that you're going to have to open up. Um, Mm. And that's something I'm still working towards, you know, Um, but I have found that the, events in my life that happened at a certain time at the time I was like I could never write about this now I'm looking back and I'm like I can probably write about this now right. yeah like ultimately it is kind of like people relate to mm. you know the truth obviously mm. and also to like a human being being open and I think like that's kind of the light at the end of the tunnel if you're doing it for the right reasons yeah you, like genuinely feel like you want to share or connect with other human beings. Cause I think that's actually what it's really about. Exactly. I think, like It's important to write stories for that reason. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. And I think yeah. that when a piece works, the vulnerability really comes through, right? Mm. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. And that's the kind of moment of connection we're talking about, I guess. Yeah. Like uh, I think for a writer, there's a point where you reach where you're like, oh, like vulnerability is really like good, like being vulnerable makes the story work. But then you might get into this mindset of like, well, I'm just going to be completely open and like writing is really easy. I just need to write about literally what's happening all the mm. time. And yeah. But it's, uh, that's, I think that's kind of deceptive. I think it's more like it's just a tool. It's almost like something you got to like tame, I think, and mm. then use in some capacity. So perhaps like, part of the vulnerability is just like with yourself Mm. as you're drafting rather than putting Mm. everything on the page and sharing that with the world kind of Mm. thing. So like, yeah. Yeah. And also just rewriting. I think like, Mm. you know, writing is rewriting. It's like the more you rewrite, the better it gets. And like, I think a lot of people tend to struggle with just getting like a first or second draft out Mm -hmm. and then, Once they've done that, they'll feel like, okay, well, that's it. But it's like, no, like that should have been done immediately. And then you want to kind of rewrite as much as possible and like analyze words and structure and language. Um, Mm. Because you wouldn't want anyone reading a first or second draft anyway. Like it's, yeah. yeah. (laughs) So much work goes into being funny. (laughs) Give us that much credit, but yeah, yeah, sure. (laughs) Thank you so much, Cyrus. It's been really nice to chat to you. Thanks so much for joining us on the new Writer's Room, Cyrus. No worries. Thanks for having me. And that's it for today's episode. Next week, we chat to Amy Duong, one of the runners-up from the 2020 SBS Emerging Writers Competition. I really wanted to look at that generational gap because that's always been something that I've never really unpacked And I think a lot about things like losing languages and what the implications are of your relationship with your parents when that happens. 
The New Writer's Room is produced by Caitlin Chang and Candace Chung and edited and mixed by Jeremy Wilmot. Our executive producers are Natalie Hambly and Danielle Teutsch. You can find SBS Voices on Facebook or on Twitter. Entries for the SBS Emerging Writers Competition close on September 16th and you can find out more by heading to sbs.com.au forward slash writers. And if you'd like to pitch a story to SBS Voices, you can email voices at sbs.com.au. The official anthology of the 2020 SBS Emerging Writers Competition is out now at all good bookshops. Roots, Home is Who We Are, published by Hardy Grant Books in partnership with SBS, features 30 of the best entries to inspire you to get writing.